Alright, welcome back to chapter 3, Medical, Legal, and Ethical Issues. Very important chapter. Um, some of the things in this chapter that you'll learn will keep you out of trouble uh, legally and uh, civilly and criminally. So, please pay attention. Overview for this chapter is going to be the scope of practice for EMTs, issue of consent and refusal, legal aspects of emergency care, which include negligence, intentional tort, confidentiality, HIPAA, and EMTALA, and protecting yourself. All right, our case study, EMTs have responded to an alley behind a strip mall for an unresponsive person. Police are on the scene and are conversing with the patient who is now sitting up. The patient who is disheveled and smells of alcohol and urine shouts, I'm not going to the hospital. Get out of here. What are the EMT's legal obligations in this situation? What ethical obligations do the EMT's have? And what information should the EMT's attempt to obtain? Remember, you can pause, rewind these videos and go back and look at the questions and please write them down or go back and look at them so that you can possibly answer them uh, as we go out, as we go through this lesson. Alright, the introduction. Every EMS call involves legal and ethical decision making. Although most instances are clear, some are not. In some cases, EMTs must weigh complex information to act in the patient's best interest. EMT's legal duties involve the scope of practice and standard of care. The scope of practice is what you can and cannot do, and the standard of care are what you must do if you are on duty and uh, treating a patient. Scope of practice, the actions and care that EMTs are legally allowed to perform by the state in which they work, establishes boundaries among professionals. Defining the scope of practice, you can look at the National EMS Scope of Practice Model, National EMS Education Standards, and your state laws, regulations, and policies. Uh, here in Louisiana, uh, we pretty much follow the national standard. They don't try to tweak anything or add anything. Um, it's, pretty, um, it's pretty cut and dry, and it goes right along with the National EMS Scope of Practice Model and EMS Education Standards. Standard of care, there are two principles. Did the EMT provide the right assessment and care? And did the EMT perform the assessment and care properly? So is it the right care and did you do it right? Duty to act, it's a legal obligation to provide service. Duty to act exists while you are on duty with your service. Duty to act does not exist when you are not on duty in most states. In Louisiana, it does not exist. If you are not on duty in Louisiana, then duty to act does not apply. Other criteria may apply, depending on your state. Good Samaritan laws protect a person who is not being paid for his services from liability for acts performed in good faith except in cases of gross negligence. 
Let's break this down just a little bit. It protects a person who is not being paid for his services from liability. So if you are not being paid and you're not on duty and you happen to do CPR or put on a tourniquet or something like that, uh, as long as you are acting in good faith and doing uh, what you were trained to do, then you will not be you you will not be uh, held to any liability. Um, but if you do things that are improper, inappropriate, and you commit negligence, meaning you try to hurt somebody and you're malicious in your intent, then you can be held liable criminally, not just civilly. Good Samaritan laws, you must render care to the best of your ability. Uh, you must work within the scope of practice and to the standard of care, and you must act professionally. Uh, just because, and of course this is not an EMT skill, uh, a chest decompression, needle decompression is not an EMT skill. But if you learn how to do it on YouTube and you've mastered it and you've practiced it, however, and you are off duty and you see somebody that needs uh, that's having a pneumothorax or a tension pneumothorax and you provide a chest uh, a needle decompression in someone's chest you have acted outside of your scope of practice regardless if you are on or off duty and i would say stand by to get sued just telling you i'm not trying to i'm not trying to scare you i'm just trying to tell you what's gonna happen other legal protections, sovereign immunity is afforded in some cases to government employees. Um, that just means that if you're a government employee, you may have immunity from all crimes or anything like that, or all negligence, but um, if you were malicious and you did things that you meant to hurt somebody, then that sovereign immunity is going to go away. Uh, statute of limitations restrict the amount of time a person has to file a lawsuit. So basically, if um, someone is going to sue you, they only have a certain amount of time to do so based on the, uh, the means in which they want to sue you or the reason they want to sue you. Uh, contributory uh, negligence on the part of the patient. Um, if, if they were negligent and they contributed to it, then you cannot be held liable for that. Okay, medical directions, very important. You will be contacting medical direction. You will have to know who medical direction is. Uh, they The legal right to function as an EMT is contingent on the approval by medical direction. Every medical service, medical school, uh, EMT school, paramedic school has a medical director. And as an EMT, um, if you are... On, on in the field and you have a question for medical direction you will call them and ask them especially if it's not a standing order which we'll get into later on with regard to medical direction you must do the following follow approved standing orders and protocols communicate with medical direction when needed ethical responsibilities let me pause right here for just a minute and I will tell you this if you want to do this job as an EMT and you cannot be ethical and you don't possess good morals, then you need to find another profession. We are not in the business of violating anyone's rights. We are not in the business of 
hurting people um, or trying to take advantage of people. So if you don't possess good ethics and morals, then I would go ahead and advise you to um, take a back seat and, and find another job. So I'm not trying to be mean or, or hateful, but if I, if I during the, the course of this uh, class, deem that you are unethical and your morals are, are not good, then I will not sign off on your license. That's just, um, I'm not going to put you out there to hurt people or to take advantage of people. But ethics is a branch of philosophy focused on the study of morality. Morals is this concept of right and wrong. EMT Code of Ethics places welfare of the patient above all else when providing medical care. I'm going to read that again. Places welfare of the patient above all else when providing medical care. We need to serve the needs of the patient, maintain skill mastery, remain abreast of changes in EMS, critically review performances, report with honesty, work harmoniously with, health, with the other healthcare team. If, if we have an issue with doing these, if our pride is going to get in the way and we're going to think we're better than everybody else, then um, we, we need to find another job. It's about teamwork. It's about uh, you may, you may uh, have to team up with uh, a nurse or a doctor who you don't get along with, but you may have to team up with that person once in a while to save a patient's life. And you're just going to have to swallow your selfish pride and do so. And you're gonna have to you're gonna have to react to criticism very very well. Um, if you're not doing skills well, and someone criticizes you, then uh, you need to take that in stride and say maybe uh, maybe it's time for me to get better at doing CPR, get better at placing a king tube, or get better at taking a blood pressure or whatever it may be. Okay, case study. The EMTs approach the patient. Hi, uh, says Caitlin. My name is Caitlin and I'm an EMT. We're here because someone called to say you are unconscious. How are you feeling? Now I'm gonna pause right here. Caitlin walked up to the patient. She didn't just start doing she just didn't start doing things. She introduced herself and told this person who she was. Um, he's already been a little rude with them, but obviously she is not getting rude back. Um, so she asked, How are you feeling? Like I've got too many People not minding their business, that's how I feel, says the patient. Why don't you all just go away and leave me alone? Should Caitlin and Phil do as the patient has requested and leave him alone? What is the legal basis for your answer? If you believe Caitlin and Phil should stay, what do you think they should do next? Again, you can pause and rewind and look at the, um, look at the, uh, case study again and then you can answer these questions I encourage you to write them down and try to answer them as we go along okay issues of patient consent and refusal consent and refusal are very very important you're going to deal with this on every call you go on competent patients have the right to accept or refuse emergency medical care 
These are people who are of their right mind. They know where they're at. They know what year it is. They know who the president is. They know what their address is. They know what's wrong with them. They can give you a medical history. They are alert and oriented. Um, they have the right to refuse. And they are adults. Uh, you must obtain consent or have the legal right to do so before providing care. Types of consent. Informed consent. Express consent. Implied consent. Minor consent and involuntary consent. And we're going to talk about, uh, let's see if they give us some notes on these types of consents. Um, they do not, but we will get into it. Let's go back to the PowerPoint. Advanced directives based on the patient's right to self-determination. Um, Documents the wish of the chronically or terminally ill patient not to be resuscitated. Uh, we'll talk about DNRs. Legally allows the patient care provider to withhold resuscitation. Uh, types of advanced directives. These are things that are put in place in advance so that when you arrive on scene, they are directives that you must follow. Uh, do not resuscitate. A living will. Healthcare durable power of attorney or health care proxy, or physician's order of life-sustaining treatment. Um, most of the um, advanced directors you're going to see are do not resuscitate orders, or DNRs. And we'll talk about those. Here's an example of a DNR. Um, and it tells you, if you look on the left and the right, it says you will and what you can, and Basically, can and cannot do what you will and will not do based on what the patient has requested. Um, here's the DNR wallet card. Hospital bracelet. And you're probably asking yourself, well, if they have a DNR, why would they have a hospital bracelet? Why would they even be in a hospital? And the answer to that is maybe they're there for supportive care to make them comfortable until... It's time for them to go, and then when it when it gets that time, then they um, then they will not resuscitate them. All right, issues and advanced directives determining validity of the document. So, if somebody, if you go on scene of a patient who is who is in need of uh, CPR, and the family member flashes a, a DNR in your face and says, "Hey, we have do not resuscitate order." Um, don't just take that in stride. You need to look at it. Make sure you can verify it with medical direction. Um, just because it's signed and sealed and all that stuff doesn't mean it's good. Make sure it's not expired. That sort of thing. And if, and if it's not good, if it's expired and medical direction cannot verify that, then you need to um, work that patient. Okay? And if the family gets in your way, you need to call law enforcement. Because now they are... Um, they are being negligent and, and stopping you from care. And, I mean, there may have been a DNR, DNR in place, but um, if it's expired or if it's not good any longer, then, because, I mean, patients can change their mind, then you need to, uh, but you need to verify that. So that, that all comes with interpreting the orders. Um, there, If there's a conflict between the DNR or physician's order of life-sustaining treatment, and wishes of the family, then all that needs to be verified through medical direction. That's why we have medical direction. They are the higher authority. Not saying that you're stupid, 
It's just saying that it takes the monkey off your back and the decision off your back when it comes to making a decision whether you're going to resuscitate the patient I mean, or attempt to resuscitate the patient or not. Um, responding to advanced directive issues. If in doubt, consider initiating immediate transport, contact medical direction, continue treatment until the issue is resolved, and document thoroughly. If you don't, when you document and you write your reports, if you don't, if it's not in your report, it never happened, whether it did happen or not. If you get punched in the face by a patient and you, you know, you may not want to press charges because they, you know, they may have been out of their right mind and not knowing what they're doing. It might have been an accident, but if it causes you to have some kind of injury to your face, like a black eye or a laceration and, um, and you need to get treated for it. Well, if it's not in your report, then your company's probably going to make you pay for the medical expenses where, whether, where, where you may have got punched by a patient and you put it in your report and then you tell your, your supervisor and they can send you to the doctor and the, the company will pay for it. I'm not going to guarantee that. I'm just saying that it's highly likely. Okay. Document thoroughly. It, it, you may not curse or use foul language, but if a patient uses foul language towards you or a family member or something like that, you need to put that exactly in your report. It's very, very important because you need to be able to tell the reader exactly what happened. And they need to be able to read your report and, and, and feel like they were on scene. Uh, refusal. Refusing treatment. A patient has a right to refuse care even if it will result in death. It's a very important statement because we are not the police. And we do not use injury as probable cause to treat people. If someone is, uh, if your paramedic runs an EKG on a patient and they are having a heart attack, and they are alert and oriented and know where they're at, and they're in their right mind and competent, and they tell you do not do anything, they don't want to go to the hospital, you cannot touch them. That's not saying you can't go sit in your truck and advise your supervisor what's going on, and if that patient goes unresponsive, then they call you back, then you can treat them. But um, if, while they're awake and competent, you can't touch them. Uh, for the patient to refuse, he must demonstrate the mental cap uh, capacity to do so. Like I said, they have to be alert and oriented, competent, know what's going on, know where they're at, know who they are, that sort of thing. Uh, capacity. Patient is lucid and able to make rational, informed decisions. Uh, the patient does not have altered mental status uh, or, is under, or is not under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Hence the case study that you are going through right now the patient must be informed of and fully understand the treatment and the potential risk or consequences of refusal so you must explain to them what why treatment be would be beneficial and why it would not be beneficial and what could happen if you don't treat them the patient must sign the release form or if he refuses attempts attempt to have someone witness the refusal Sometimes they, they just won't sign. They're not gonna, they're gonna refuse and they're gonna say, I'm not signing any paperwork. That's the way some people are. We just put on there, refuse to sign. If you can get a witness, uh, that's great. Uh, and most likely the best witnesses that you're gonna have on scene are gonna be law enforcement. Okay, I wanna back up just a little bit to consent, informed consent. The patient tells you, you may treat me. That is, that is informed consent. Okay, they have informed you that you can, that you can treat them. Express consent is in an emergency type situation where you don't have uh, time to get 
to go through all the questions and things like that. And uh, I'm going to look it up in the, the text real quick. Just so I can get you a good. And also, yeah, express consent is also something that's been given to you um, um, ahead of time. Um, so that, you know, um, no matter, like, say, for instance, there's a power of attorney. Uh, someone has a power of attorney over a patient. The patient says, hey, I don't want to get treated. Well, that person has expressed consent and can authorize you to treat that patient. Implied consent is whenever you may have um, a patient who is unresponsive and or altered. Um and you have to treat them because you know that there's a life-threatening emergency going on and they need to go to the hospital, um, you can um, use implied consent to, as good faith to say, um, well, it was, I, it was in good faith that I would assume that that patient wanted to be treated. Uh, minor consent, uh, patient 17 and younger have to be, uh, consent has to be given by the parent. Um, if the parent isn't on scene and cannot be contacted, then you can use implied consent to treat that patient. Involuntary consent uh, is when a patient is forced to agree without understanding uh, the implication of agreeing. Um, so we don't ever want to uh, use involuntary consent. Uh, and like I said, we will use implied consent will come into place when um, people are altered or unresponsive. Okay. All right, let's go back. Protecting yourself in refusal situations, complete a thorough assessment. Don't just not assess your patient at all. You can, you can do a lot of things just by looking at them. Make sure the patient is competent. Exhaust your attempts to persuade the patient. Exhaust your attempts to persuade the patient. I mean, eventually you can only talk so much and then the patient, you're just going to be like, okay, well, I've, I've said all I can. Consult medical direction as needed. Clear, uh, clearly document what you told the patient and his response to it. Encourage patients to seek help later or through different means. We went on scene of a guy who accidentally stabbed himself in the hand with some scissors. He bled pretty good before we got there. We bandaged him up, but he refused to go with us. He refused any treatment after that and had someone um, drive him to the hospital. So he did it through different means. And he, didn't, he just didn't want to pay the ambulance bill, I'm assuming. Okay. Always, always keep complete and accurate documentation. Um, here's a little news for you that you will not have to write things on paper most of the time. Um, there are some refusals, uh, refusal forms. If you um, go on the scene of multiple, uh, like just a car accident or something like that, and there's multiple refusals, you'll use um, the refusal forms. Um, And most likely because there's only one uh, tablet for per, per ambulance, <laughs> not one tablet per EMT. 
So um, that's when you'll have to document via paper, but they're pretty simple forms. But most most of the time you'll have the uh, tablet. There's the guy. He's like, don't touch me. Leave me alone. Okay, sir, we're going to get your name and date of birth, and I want you to sign this form saying that you refused all treatment and care. All right? Keep, act, keep complete and accurate documentation. All right, case study. I can understand how you might feel like people are in your business right now, says Caitlin. We are here to help, but before we can decide what to do, I need to ask you a few questions. First, though, what is your name? Mike Blevins. Mr. Blevins. And again, I don't know where they get these names for these case studies. Mr. Blevins, do you know where you are right now? Asked Caitlin, beginning the process of determining the patient's decision-making ability. What questions should Caitlin ask to help her decide whether the patient has the capacity to make an important decision, such as consenting or refusing medical care? Again, please write this down, and you can try to answer it as we go along. Negligence. Negligence. It's one of those dirty words in EMS care. Is a breach of legal duty that creates a liability. Two types of negligence exist, criminal and civil. Um, civil is where you get civ uh, civilly sued. You don't see any jail time, but you can still get sued monetarily, meaning they will take your money or your, or your belongings. Criminal negligence, well, that's probably going to see some, um, probably going to hit you financially and send you to jail or put you on probation, depending on the severity of the crime. Negligence, negligence is a tort in which there is no intent to do harm, but there was a breach of duty to act. So negligence is not necessarily I'm meant to do it, but it happened anyway. Like, um, I don't know, a patient needed oxygen or a patient needed aspirin and you didn't administer it and you had all the means to do so and there's negligence. Or a patient was bleeding. Uh, had an arterial bleed and you didn't place the tourniquet to try to stop the bleeding. And your patient bled out and and died and then you're 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 negligent. You are negligent. Um, elements to prove negligence, the EMT had a duty to act, meaning you were there, you were getting paid. The EMT breached the duty to act, meaning you saw what needed to be done and you didn't do it. The patient suffered harm or injury, and the patient, the injury was a result of the breach of duty, which is a, called a proximate cause, and I will tell you that that term proximate cause will be seen again, which means the injury was a result of the breach of duty, so um, your patient was injured because you failed to act. Associated legal principles, res ipsa liquitur. Uh, the thing that speaks for itself, the inappropriate actions are obvious. Um, this is kind of like um, severe, but if you go on scene, your patient's in an obvious uh, myocardial infarction, and you stand there and look at them, or if they're not breathing and there's no pulse and you do not perform CPR, but you know you should, and you should just stand there and look, well... That kind of speaks for itself. So, or negligence per se, the act is negligent simply because it violates a statute or regulation. 
So don't do anything that violates laws or um, any kind of protocols or regulations. Uh, intentional torts, various types of intentional torts. Abandonment. These are things you do intentionally. Assault, battery, false imprisonment, defamation like slander. Um, abandonment is, you know, yeah, you need help, but I'm leaving. Assault is where we um, we threaten someone. Assault and battery are different. Assault in Louisiana is a specific threat. Like, um, ma'am, don't talk to me like that anymore, or I'm going to slap you across your face. That is assault. You can't be charged criminally for that. Battery is an unwanted touching. Any unwanted touching in the state of Louisiana. That means um, if someone says... If you introduce yourself and you ask them to take a blood pressure and they say don't touch me and you put the blood pressure cuff on, you have just committed a battery. Okay. False imprisonment. Um, if your patient needs to leave and you don't want them to and they're uh, using their, their, their of their right mind and they're able to make rash decisions and they refuse and you hold them against their wills, false imprisonment or if you force the patient onto the stretcher and into the ambulance and to the hospital, that is false imprisonment. Defamations, when you just talk bad about people. Uh, remember, there's HIPAA laws and EMTALA. And if you do, uh, if you discuss anything that you did with the patient, then you can be sued for defamation of character. Um, the difference between intentional tort and negligence is that negligence is a failure to meet the standard of care. Whereas an intentional tort is knowingly committed. Alright, here's some EMTs transferring care to a flight crew for transport to a trauma center. You must always transfer care of a patient to a professional of equal or better training to avoid charges of abandonment. So EMTs, you are not transferring care to EMRs. They are a lower uh, certification level and uh, you are higher than they are. We do not transfer care to anyone lower of a lower certification than ourselves. We can transfer care to another EMT basic or an advanced EMT or a paramedic or a nurse or a doctor, but no one lower than us. All right, medical legal terminology check. Match the term below to the statement that best describes it by clicking on the text box of your selected response. Abandonment. Okay, abandonment, if you chose, let's see. Alright, if you chose terminating the patient care without the patient's agreement and without transferring care to another provider, you would be correct. That is abandonment. Battery. If you chose unlawfully touching a person or a patient, then you would be correct. Negligence. If you chose a tort in which there was no intent to cause harm, then you are correct.
You didn't intend to cause harm, but you did. That is negligence. Duty to act. If you chose a legal responsibility to do something, then you are correct. Defamation. If you chose making statements about a person or orally or in writing that is that harm his reputation, then you are correct. All right, confidentiality. Do not speak to the press, your family, friends, or the public about details of the emergency care you provided to a patient. Releasing confidential, confidential information requires a written release form signed by the patient or a legal guardian. By law, you can release information if needed in order to continue medical care. Mandatory reporting laws apply. Required by police, excuse me, required by police as a part of a potential crime and criminal investigation. A third party billing form requires the information or you are subpoenaed. Let's go over these. Um, the first one needed in order to continue medical care. Uh, when you're transferring care to someone of equal or higher certification, you can release medical information about that patient. That is called giving a history and that person will need to know to help them better care for the patient. Mandatory report, reporting laws apply. You are a mandatory reporter as an EMT, meaning if you see any abuse or negligence or crime being committed uh, on your patient, um, then you need to report that to the proper authorities. That's when you can release medical information, when you're mandatory, mandatorily reporting something to the proper authorities. Um, retire, required by police as a part of a potential criminal investigation if the police are conducting an investigation, then you release as much uh, medical information about that patient necessary to help them with their investigation. They already have the patient's information, so it's not like you are uh, telling any, any secrets or lies. Uh, Third-party billing form requires information. Uh, you usually won't have to do that. You'll, you'll um, put that in your, um, in your report and billing will get that from your report or you are subpoenaed subpoena means you are called to court officially called to court by the defense or the prosecutors and you must go and testify okay here's the big um here's the big thing everybody hears about hipaa health insurance portability and accountability act hipaa you will need to know exactly what hipaa stands for it's right there in front of you um, because they will ask you questions on the test and they will not abbreviate HIPAA. They will spell it out and you have to know what it is, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Federal law protects the privacy of patient health care information. HIPAA also applies to you whenever you call in sick and your boss says, well, what's wrong with you? And you don't have to answer that. If you choose to, that's on you. You have not violated HIPAA, but um, HIPAA, HIPAA regulations say that you do not have to divulge that information. You can just say, I'm sick. 
Uh, HIPAA and EMS, you may discuss patient-specific information only when there is a medical necessity, just like we discussed earlier. You must receive training in your agency's policies, and I guarantee you that you will. Patients must be provided with privacy policies. Every time you go to the doctor uh, nowadays, and when you get discharged, whether you're in the hospital or at the doctor's office, they hand you all those forms and everything, and they tell you you can take these home. Well, it's all of your HIPAA and privacy information. I bet none of you ever looked at it before, but I bet you will now. All right. The consolidated, excuse me, Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. It is by the U.S. Department of Labor. It stands for COBRA. Um, it's act. It was established in 1985 by Congress on reconciliation basis and signed by President Reagan. Among other things, mandates an insurance program which gives some employees the ability to continue health insurance coverage after leaving employment. I will tell you that COBRA insurance is super, super expensive. It's good insurance, but it's super, super expensive. Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. Uh, or MTALA. In 1986, um, while well, it's read the federal regulations that ensure access to emergency health care regardless of ability to pay. So in 1986, Congress enacted a, a, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act to ensure public access to emergency services regardless of ability to pay. Um, so basically, um, this act will, if you can't pay for emergency medical treatment, which is you guys, emergency pre-hospital care, um, like an ambulance bill or something like that, MTALA will take effect and um, pay the bill for them because we cannot deny anyone treatment. Coburn MTALA EMS involvement. EMS becomes involved when patients are being transferred from hospital to another medical facility. Um, in EMS, you will do that a lot. Um, you'll pick up a patient at a hospital and transfer them to another hospital depending on um, the treatment that they need to uh, get. That hospital they were in may not have that type of uh, ability, so they need to go excuse me, to another one. The patient must first be stabilized to the best of the medical facility's ability, meaning they're not going to come tell you to come pick up a patient who is in critical condition and unstable without well, being unfair and wrong and they would need a lot of critical care ambulances for that the ambulance crew performing the transfer must be qualified and capable of managing the patient and his condition like i said there there are um critical care ambulances and paramedics out there um picking up patients on ventilators and and such and medication administration so um you can't just send a BLS truck out for that kind of thing. These have to be specially trained um, individuals. Protecting yourself in transport and transfer situations. Obtain written certification for the transfer from the transferring physician. Um, when you get to the hospital, the, there's the, the, the transferring hospital, you will get a big packet of paperwork 
and you will take that with you to the new hospital. Ensure you can provide the level of care needed during transport. Uh, meaning, uh, if it's a if you're basic life support EMT basic, you are not going to be um, transporting a patient who is in need of oxygen, um, or EKG, or medication, or IV fluids, or anything like that. They just can't can't do it. If their mental status or the Glasgow coma scale is below 13, then the paramedic or someone are with ALS capabilities will have to transport that patient. Uh, you have to know where you're going and take the quickest possible route. Don't be lollygagging around with the patient in the back. Y'all can't go stop at Burger King, get you a Whopper. You know, everybody having a good old time. They're in transport. You still have a job to do. Um, organ donation. Organs can be donated only if there is a legal signed document given permission. Permission. Uh, a signed donor card is a legal document. Driver's license. Organ donor status that provides an intent to donate organs. I don't know why we would, you, sometimes you may transport an organ, that may be why they're talking about this, but I, otherwise I don't know. Medical identification insignia, bracelets, necklaces, or cards. Usually when you see something like that, you flip it over and it will tell you um, what's wrong with this patient. They're diabetic or they're whatever the condition is. They're, maybe they're allergies or something like that, which would be a good thing to know. And that's just in case they're unresponsive. Uh, tattoos. Uh, it's not universally accepted yet. Tattoos are universally accepted. But, um, I mean, if, if you go up on a scene and, and you got a patient who's got a whole sleeve done on their right arm and they got diabetic put on there somewhere, are you going to be looking on that arm to see, you know, if they got any uh, medical identification tattoos? Probably not. Um, so like it says, it may be overlooked as body art. Now, if there's no tattoos on that arm and there's this word that says diabetic and you're like, Hmm, that should raise a red flag. I mean, why would somebody get diabetic? Just the word diabetic tattooed to their arm is something you can think about. <clears throat> Recognizing death in the field. Generally, if the patient is still warm and does not exhibit any obvious signs of death, you must begin resuscitation. There is an exception for patients with hypothermia. Hypothermia, um, if someone has hypothermia or has been exposed to cold, you need to try to warm them and you try to perform resuscitation attempts because hypothermia, um, amazingly so, will uh, stop the body from dying. It will slow everything down. They may appear dead, but... Like I said, you need to warm them up and see if they're really dead. I know that sounds bad, but it's true. For patients with an advanced directive, absence of a pulse and breathing, completely unresponsiveness to any stimuli, painful verbal um, stimuli, no eye movement or pupil response, absence of blood pressure, and no reflexes. These are people with uh, DNRs. Which you need to look for. For people with no advanced, so DNRs give us a little bit more leeway to say, you know, we're not resuscitating. Um, because without a, an advanced directive, I would work this patient. Just saying. Now, for a patient without an advanced directive, we have to see some very, very um, serious signs and symptoms before we 
go to work them, like decapitation. Obviously, if their head is not attached to their body, there's nothing we could do for them. Rigor mortis uh, is where all the, the blood is pooled to the lowest part of the body. Decomposition, obviously, there's you know, you'll be able to smell decomposition, but you'll also be able to see where the body is, is decomposing. It's disgusting, and it's a smell you will never forget. And dependent lividity, meaning the the body has stiffened. Cases requiring investigation by the coroner or medical examiner: homicide or suicide, a violent death, crash-related death, unusual scene characteristics, sudden infant death syndrome, and dead on arrival in some locations must be investigated by the coroner or the medical examiner to make sure there is no um, signs of false play. Crime scenes. Your first concern upon approaching a crime scene should be for your own safety. Recognizing a possible crime scene requires a high index of suspicion. Potential crime scenes require police support. Wait until the police declare that the scene is safe. Even when the police declare the scene safe, it can still be potentially dangerous. Once the scene is secure, your priority is emergency care of the patient. Avoid disturbing potential evidence. Take one way in and out. I can guarantee you that the police will tell you don't touch certain things. Touch only what you must tell a police officer if you move or touch anything. Do not use a crime scene telephone. Like, we all have cell phones now. Please don't pick up someone's house phone that's on the scene of a crime and, and call your supervisor. Please don't do that. Um, in the absence of police permission, move the patient only if he is in danger or must be moved for you to provide care. Observe and document carefully. Do not cut through holes in clothing. That means from stab wounds and gunshot wounds. Do not cut through any rope knot or tie. Do not cover the patient with a sheet. If the crime is rape, do not wash the patient or allow the patient to wash. Ask the patient not to change clothing. Uh, use the bathroom or take anything by mouth. Special reporting situations, like I said earlier, you are mandatory reporters. You must report any abuse to anyone, juvenile, adult, or uh, the elderly. You must report crimes or possible crimes, and you must report drug-related injuries. Baby safe haven laws designed to prevent child abandonment allow a parent to relinquish custody of an unharmed infant to a proper authority. An EMS station may be a designated safe haven. So if a parent deems that they cannot take care of their child, they can relinquish custody. Obviously, law enforcement, child protection has to be involved, but they can relinquish custody to you or law enforcement, um, and that baby will go for adoption. All right, lesson summary, emergency care involves medical, legal, and ethical issues. 
Scope of practice identifies what care can legally be performed. Standard of care identifies the accepted level of care. Medical direction is required for medical oversight of an EMS system. A competent adult can refuse care. That's why they put that there by itself. Consent applies in all patient care situations. Four elements must be proven to establish negligence. HIPAA, COBRA, and EMTALA apply to EMS. There are special considerations in responding to crime scenes. All right, we'll see you next time.